I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. This episode involves discussions about intimate partner abuse. Please take care before listening. Grady Stiles Jr. was born a showman. He came from a long line of sideshow performers who had a genetic condition known as ectrodactyly. When this defect occurs in the womb, the middle digits of the hand and foot are missing, and the remaining ones fuse into two parts. The condition can manifest differently in people, but it always involves a malformation of one or more fingers and toes. Grady was born with two-fingered hands that resembled lobster claws and footless legs ending just below the knee. According to the National Library of Medicine, ectrodactyly, or EEC, is incredibly rare and only occurs in 1 in 90,000 births. Grady was the fourth generation in his family born with the syndrome. Like many of his relatives, he capitalized on his physical defects by appearing in traveling carnivals. He found it was the only way to make a living in a society that has a long history of judging people by appearances. It's easy to imagine that a lifetime spent as a public spectacle could be emotionally taxing. But Grady had a coping mechanism, alcohol. For Grady, drinking heavily blurred out the pain of ridicule and rejection. Unfortunately, alcohol also made him incredibly mean and violent. This tendency toward violence would manifest into murder, with Grady being the perpetrator. Later, 
the man known as Lobster Boy would find himself on the other side of murder, falling victim to two bullets in the back of his head. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me in exploring the unorthodox case of Grady Stiles Jr., otherwise known by the stage name Lobster Boy. This case takes us to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Gibsonton, Florida. Grady Stiles Jr. was born in Pittsburgh, which is considered the second biggest city in Pennsylvania after Philadelphia, with a population of roughly 300,000. The western Pennsylvania city was once home to some of the country's earliest amusement parks. Further south, near Tampa, Florida, is a small unincorporated community of roughly 14,000 called Gibsonton. The community is sometimes referred to by locals as Gibtown. It's a relic of the past, reminiscent of a time when physical abnormality was considered a potential source of profit. During the golden age of carnivals, from the 1870s through the 1920s, Gibsonton was considered a utopia. Performers founded the community in 1884, and word of mouth kept it thriving. For many in the sideshow business, Gibsonton was a place of acceptance and belonging during the off-season each year from November through March. During those months, the town came alive. According to The Guardian, Gibsonton offered some unique accommodations for its residents. There was a post office that catered to little people with extra low counters, a beer hall with custom-built chairs for the fat ladies, as they called them, and the tallest man. The city also had special zoning regulations that permitted exotic animals in certain areas. There were even factories in town where Ferris wheels and carousels were manufactured. Today, Gibsonton is home to some of the last remaining carnival and circus performers. The largest trade show in the carnival industry continues to be held there every year. Grady Stiles Jr. and his young family lived in Gibsonton when they weren't on the road. Grady developed a bit of a reputation there, and it wasn't exactly positive. Born on June 26, 1937, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Grady Franklin Stiles Jr. was the youngest child and only boy born to parents Grady Stiles Sr. and Edna Stiles. Before her three children were born, Edna worked at a local bank doing data processing. Her priorities shifted to parenting once Ruby, Margaret, and Grady Jr. were born. Only one of Grady's sisters, was born with ectrodactyly. Doctors had told Edna and Grady Sr. there was a 50-50 chance that any children they had would be born with the congenital defect, but they decided to take their chances. It seemed like luck of the draw that two out of their three children were impacted by the gene. Grady Jr.'s specific condition caused mobility issues. He used a wheelchair regularly. When it came to moving short distances, Grady preferred to haul himself around by relying on upper body strength. Out of the Stiles' children, Grady Jr. took after his old man the most. 
By the time Grady Jr. was born with malformed hands and legs, Grady Sr. had been performing in sideshows as Lobster Man for many years. Before he was old enough to talk, Grady Jr. watched as crowds paid good money to get a look at his father. Under a red and white tent, the Lobster Man would exclaim, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Grady Stiles, the Lobster Man. This condition is not caused by drugs or diseases. It runs in the family. Then, Grady's father would demonstrate the use of his pincher-like hands as a stunned crowd watched in awe. It was a crowd-pleasing routine that Grady Jr. would go on to emulate in his own career. But Grady Jr.'s interests should not be misconstrued as ambition. The sad reality was, the Stiles family struggled with money, and they needed all the help they could get. At just seven years old, Grady Jr.'s parents forced him to drop out of school and work instead. In 1944, Grady Jr. began performing alongside his father as a duo often billed as the Lobster Family. As reported by the LA Times, Grady Jr. spent the next half century traveling from town to town on the carnival circuit, hoisting himself atop a cushioned platform in a sweltering tent. Through his work, Grady Jr. got to meet a lot of other people in the carnival sideshow business. He also encountered those who ran away to join the carnival, generally young people who sought to live on the outskirts of society for one reason or another. That's how a teenaged Grady met 19-year-old Mary Teresa Herzog. Mary was a fellow carnival worker, though she wasn't in the spotlight performing. She'd fled an abusive home. Mary and Grady quickly developed a romantic bond and they married in 1958. The happy couple went on to have two daughters together, Donna and Kathy. While Donna was born without ectrodactyly, Kathy was born with deformities similar to her father. The first few years as a family were blissful, according to Mary. Then, Grady discovered whiskey. As quoted by the LA Times, Mary watched alcohol transform her husband from a caring family man into a battering brute. It was a Jekyll and Hyde switch that terrified Mary, especially as someone who'd experienced domestic violence since she was a little girl. But Mary loved Grady. He was a great father when he was sober. Yet under the influence of heavy drinking, he was a monster who raged and fought past his disabilities to smack Mary or the girls with his claw-like appendages. By 1973, Mary decided she couldn't live in fear anymore. She divorced Grady and quickly married another sideshow performer. Harry Glenn Newman, or Glenn as everyone called him, was a little person billed as the world's smallest man. According to the book Lobster Boy, The Bizarre Life and Brutal Death of Grady Stiles Jr. by Fred Rosen, Glenn was a welder by trade, but respiratory problems caused by his height had forced him into the carnival circuit to make a living. Glenn had been a friend of the Stiles family for many years. At one point, he'd performed under Grady's leadership. As Grady's alcohol-fueled violence worsened, 
Glenn had been a shoulder for Mary to cry on. Their romance blossomed into marriage, and the couple went on to have a son together, who they named Harry Glenn Newman Jr., who went by Glenn as he got older. Meanwhile, Grady took the children and moved back to his hometown of Pittsburgh. Mary couldn't afford the legal fees of a custody battle, so Grady had full custody. Every so often, she reached out to ask him if she could see the girls. Grady's answer would fluctuate based on his sobriety. Through their daughters, Grady heard about Mary's new marriage. He was enraged to hear that Mary had found happiness without him. Seemingly out of revenge, Grady remarried. His marriage to Barbara Browning lasted only a few years. He continued to struggle with alcoholism, and it was obvious to everyone around him. Grady and Mary's daughter, Donna, who'd been born without ectrodactyly, ran away from home at the age of 17. While out on her own, Donna fell in love with 18-year-old Jack Lane. Before long, they announced their engagement. As reported by the LA Times, Donna knew her father would not approve, so she told a white lie about being pregnant. She figured it might win him some points with Grady if Jack seemed like he was trying to do the honorable thing by marrying her. But Grady despised his daughter's fiancé as soon as he met him. Like Donna, Jack was able-bodied and physically healthy. Maybe Grady resented Jack, and possibly his own daughter, for their socially accepted appearances. Or maybe Grady overheard an offhand remark made by Jack. Either way, Grady believed that Jack made fun of his deformities behind his back. As Grady's lawyer, Anthony DiCello, would later tell the Toronto Sun, Grady never forgave anybody who did that. He carried that hate so badly, the kid said he was a freak. Even though Grady made his opinion of Jack known, Donna refused to let her father control her. She and Jack set a wedding date of September 28, 1978. As the date approached, Donna hoped to somehow change her father's mind about Jack. She sought the kind of harmony that was absent from her early life. As reported by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, one afternoon, Donna accompanied Grady to a pawn shop where he purchased a 32 caliber revolver and jokingly told her he'd use it on Jack. Donna knew her father had a twisted sense of humor but the interaction left her feeling uneasy. During final wedding preparations, Donna stayed with her sister to avoid conflict with Grady. The night before the wedding, Grady asked Jack to come over. He insisted he just wanted to have a heart-to-heart with his future son-in-law. What seemed like an innocuous request turned out to be a setup. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Grady would later testify that Jack taunted him by saying, I told you I'd get her. Grady had tucked the pawn shop revolver under the cushion of his wheelchair. In that moment, he pulled out the gun and fired one shot into Jack Lane's chest. As the boy turned to flee, Grady fired again. This time, a bullet struck Jack in the back. Donna and her stepmother, Barbara, 
had just returned home from an evening shopping trip. As Donna got out of the car, Jack stumbled toward her. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Jack mumbled to Donna, he shot me, before collapsing on the sidewalk in front of her. As Donna Stiles later told the LA Times, my dad was just sitting up on the porch smiling. He said, I told you I'd kill him. Minutes later, Jack died in Donna's arms. Are you finally starting that business this year, but you don't know where to start? You need Shopify. It's the perfect partner for launching and growing your business. Shopify is like your global selling sidekick, there for you at every step of your business journey. From kicking off your online shop to opening that first real life store, Shopify is your support squad. Whether you're hustling sleuthing supplies or rocking mystery merch, Shopify's got your back with an all-in-one online selling tool and in-person system for wherever and whatever you're selling. Get ready to turn window shoppers into buyers with Shopify's checkout magic, the internet's top converter, beating other platforms by up to 36%. And selling's a breeze with Shopify magic, a super smart AI tool that helps you sell more with less effort. I love that Shopify is so user-friendly and an all-in-one platform, there for you through all stages of your business. Shopify fuels a whopping 10% of all online shopping in the United States. They're the muscle behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and tons of other big and small players in 175 countries worldwide. It's simple, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash murderish, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash murderish now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash murderish. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It was a horror that no bride could ever imagine. Donna's own father had taken away the only man she ever loved just a few hours before they were supposed to begin their lives together. It seemed unfathomable that one man could cause that level of destruction. When police showed up, Grady surrendered without a struggle. During questioning, he proved cooperative and made a full confession. Donna never spoke to her father again. Now, instead of going to a wedding, those closest to Grady were attending his murder trial. Grady's defense team tried to take a self-defense stance, first claiming that Jack lunged at him. Grady was portrayed as a doting, protective father, just trying to protect his young daughter from an older man. A Pittsburgh jury didn't buy it and found Grady guilty of third-degree murder. According to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, 
ahead of Grady's sentencing hearing, prison officials sent a letter to the court stating they were unable to accommodate Grady's special needs. In addition to his ectrodactyly, medical officials had determined that Grady also had emphysema, kidney disease, and cirrhosis of the liver. Without proper treatment, he would not survive in prison. A sympathetic judge sentenced Grady Stiles Jr. to 15 years probation and house arrest. Following the trial, no restrictions were put on Grady leaving Pennsylvania. He relocated to Gibsonton, Florida, where his ex-wife Mary happened to be living with her second husband and their son. Grady and Mary still ran in the same social circles, and before long, they'd reconnected. Since shooting and killing his daughter's fiancé, Grady had vowed to stop drinking. He recognized how explosive his temper became while intoxicated. To Mary, Grady seemed like a new man. Eventually, Grady's second wife, Barbara, divorced him, and Mary still carried a soft spot in her heart for Grady after the passing of so many years. She decided to end her marriage to Glenn and rekindle her relationship with Grady. They remarried in 1989. The son Mary had with her second husband, Glenn, decided to live with the reunited couple. Glenn was in awe of the carnival lifestyle and begged Grady to make him part of his show. Grady agreed, giving him the moniker Human Blockhead due to his low IQ and his ability to hammer nails into his nostrils. Grady had really built up his act over the years. He started his own freak show, keeping himself as the headliner of a 10-in-1 performance with other acts that he developed and branded himself. According to the LA Times, in addition to the human blockhead, other featured performers included the human pincushion, the gorilla lady Burmese pythons, and a sideshow of animal oddities. While Grady now showcased a high level of business acumen that would have made his father proud, he hadn't really changed as a person. Mary would later remark about the transformation that convinced her to remarry Grady, telling the LA Times, two weeks later, he was back to the same old Grady. Grady's heavy drinking resumed, and so did his sadistic behavior toward Mary, but it didn't stop with her. Over the years, Grady's rage had only gotten worse. He was quicker to snap and less likely to show any restraint when it came to physical violence. In one incident cited by the LA Times, Grady's daughter Kathy tried to block him from swatting at her mother. At the time, Kathy was seven months pregnant and Grady knocked her out of her wheelchair. As a result, Kathy was forced to have an emergency C-section and her daughter was born prematurely. There were several other close calls. The full truth would only come out later. Mary alleged Grady sexually abused her and said he tried to smother her with a pillow on multiple occasions. According to the LA Times, one morning, Mary awoke to Grady's hot whiskey breath just inches from her face as the chill of a knife blade grazed her throat. As quoted in the LA Times, Mary claimed Grady threatened her, saying, one of these days, I'm going to kill you and your family. 
Then he dropped the knife and crawled out of sight. Life with Grady was a living hell, and Mary saw no reasonable way out. Her life, from most of her children to her social circle, and her means of making a living, all of it was tied to Grady. The man Mary had built her entire world around was her tormentor, and he showed no signs of relenting. Grady's alcoholism and ensuing bitterness had begun to surface in the middle of his shows. If spectators heckled him too much, Grady lunged at them. Other performers had to hold him back. Mary and others close to Grady knew something had to be done. Mary didn't realize it at the time, but she would later recite those words as though it was a mantra, especially after what happened next. In the fall of 1992, Mary had reached her breaking point. It was the end of an eight-month stint on the road. They were headed into the off-season, which, to Mary, meant a lot of isolation with Grady in his cramped trailer. Without a doubt, he would drink, which was always to excess. The booze would inevitably fuel a heated argument. If Mary was lucky, she could avoid her husband. If she wasn't, he would swat at her with his malformed hands and leave a fresh path of bruises. The abuse had intensified since Grady and Mary's first marriage. Many journalists would later theorize that Grady may have felt untouchable at that point in time. After all, he'd gotten away with murder. Since Grady only faced probation for killing a man, it seemed unlikely he would face prison time for domestic abuse. A few months later, on November 29th of 1992, Grady Stiles Jr. was shot dead in his trailer with two bullets to the back of his head. Grady's murder did not come as a surprise to the residents of Gibsonton. The 55-year-old had become impossible to work with. He was a loose cannon. The question investigators faced was not if Grady had enemies, but which enemy had gotten to him first. Grady's excessive drinking over many decades had contributed to forever worsening health issues. If someone hadn't ended his life early, he surely would have passed prematurely from natural causes. Early on in the investigation, Bill Myers, owner of Myers International Midways, told deputies they should look close to home for Grady's killer, according to the Tampa Bay Times. He added, if local law enforcement couldn't crack the case, the community of Gibsonton would. After all, the Kearney town was incredibly close-knit. It was no secret. Grady had a mean streak that he took out on his family. As such, detectives kicked off their investigation by questioning Grady's family members. Mary's relatives, who lived nearby, told officers that on the night Grady was killed, she had paid them a brief visit. Based on Grady's estimated time of death, investigators established that Mary had been with these relatives. Multiple neighbors had seen Mary leave the couple's mobile home around 20 minutes before gunshots were heard. These accounts meant that Mary wasn't home at the time Grady was killed. 
but it didn't rule out her involvement. Detectives narrowed in on a neighbor and classmate of Glenn's, Grady's stepson, 17-year-old Christopher Wyant, a fellow sideshow performer, had a reputation around the community as a tough guy, prone to violence. He was even rumored to have gang ties. It wasn't a stretch of the imagination that he'd participated in a lethal crime. Mary Stiles, Harry Glenn Newman III, and Chris Wyant were all brought in for questioning. Detectives easily identified these individuals as the most likely culprits. During her police interview, it was clear Mary considered her visit to relatives as a solid alibi. On the night in question, Mary left Grady at home watching TV. She recalled finding her husband brutally murdered when she returned about an hour later. But there was one thing Mary hadn't considered, the reliability of her co-conspirators. Treat your furry friend like the family they are and feed them Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers tailor-made dog food that suits your furry pal's needs, boosting their A-game. It's all about real, wholesome ingredients with Nom Nom. None of that sneaky filler stuff that leads to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, delicious food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are designed by board-certified veterinary nutritionists, freshly made and shipped free right to your doorstep. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs just like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. My dog, Shadow and Clipper, are such a big part of our family. It's only right that I give them the best food possible. With Nom Nom, I feel so great about the ingredients in my dog's food and they are obsessed with it. Every bowl is licked clean. My boys love Nom Nom, but let your dogs be the judge. Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com murderish. Spelled trynom.com slash murderish for 50% off. Trynom.com slash murderish. Mary's son, Glenn, was given a lie detector test about his whereabouts the night of the crime. The man known as the human blockhead, who was born with an impaired IQ, failed the polygraph. Thinking he'd been caught, Glenn broke down and gave a full confession. He told investigators he'd hired his friend Chris using his mother's money. Chris was given $1,500 to kill Grady. On the night of November 29th, Chris hid in a back room of Grady's trailer and waited. He emerged as soon as Mary left. As Grady lounged in his recliner, chain-smoking and sipping iced tea with the TV blaring, Chris crept up behind him and fired into Grady's skull. Less than 24 hours after Grady's bullet-riddled body was found, Mary, Glenn, and Chris were arrested. Mary faced manslaughter charges with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, while her son Glenn was charged with first-degree murder. 
Despite Chris being a minor, a judge determined that he would be charged as an adult with second-degree murder. A fourth person was arrested just a few days later. An acquaintance of Chris's, 18-year-old Dennis John Cowell, had helped Chris acquire the gun and bury it following the murder. Dennis pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact and was later sentenced to three and a half years in prison. He'd only end up serving a fraction of that. Mary's case went to trial, with her lawyers leaning on a self-defense angle. Grady had tormented Mary for decades, and that was her motive for wanting him gone. Her defense team believed they could earn a jury's sympathy. As the Gibtown community eagerly awaited court proceedings, people generally reacted to Grady's murder with apathy. According to the Tampa Tribune, the turnout for his funeral was abysmal. Only 10 people showed up, and no one volunteered as a pallbearer to carry his coffin. Grady was buried in the Showman's Rest Cemetery in Tampa, Florida. Fellow carnies who opted to speak with the media didn't seem to have much compassion for Mary. News of her murder-for-hire plot erased any pity they had felt for the abuse she endured. Jeannie Tomaney, once known as the world's oldest living half-lady, failed to understand Mary's logic, telling the LA Times, all she had to do was walk away. I don't have any legs or much of anything going for me, but if anybody gives me a hard time, you better know I'll be out of there. Wayne Murray, a former sideshow barker, felt similarly. He said to the LA Times, she would have stood a better chance had she turned around and killed him herself. People can at least relate to that. It would be up to a Hillsborough County jury to take their own stance and decide Mary's fate. Mary Stiles' trial began in July of 1994. As planned, her legal team focused their defense strategy on the idea that Mary suffered from battered spouse syndrome. That's what drove her to resort to murder. She was only trying to protect herself and her family from a monster. In using a battered wife defense during a murder-for-hire trial, defense attorney Arnold Levine was setting a legal precedent in Florida. In fact, as reported by the Miami Herald, claiming self-defense in a contract murder had only been attempted a few times nationally. None of the attempts had been successful. It was a bold move, but Levine gave it all he had. According to the Tampa Bay Times, in opening statements, Levine told the jury, because of the cumulative years of abuse, Mary Stiles believed she was in imminent fear of harm or death. She had no alternative but to participate in this unthinkable act. State prosecutors, however, argued that Mary had plenty of other options besides arranging to have her husband killed. As quoted by the Tampa Tribune, Prosecutor Ron Haynes said, Mary Stiles knew that night it was murder, and she knows today it was murder. She entered into an open-ended contract to have Grady Stiles killed, to have him removed from the house. Haynes also pointed out how Glenn's confession undermined the self-defense angle. He had told detectives 
His mother came to him with the idea to knock off Grady weeks before his murder. Mary had given him the money to hire a hitman nearly a week before it was carried out. There was obviously planning involved. As reported by the Miami Herald, the state called Grady's murder a killing of convenience. Mary stood to acquire Grady's most lucrative carnival shows in the event of his death. Regardless of which argument was more persuasive, the entire courtroom listened in rapt silence when Mary took the stand. According to the Miami Herald, Mary testified that she'd been stuck in a kill or be killed situation. She detailed the worst of the abuse, including several times when Grady threatened her life. Despite physical limitations due to his condition, he used his fused fingers to inflict pain by twisting Mary's breasts or poking her in the eyes. When asked under cross-examination why she didn't just leave, Mary spoke of her children. As quoted by the Tampa Bay Times, she replied, where would I go? Grady was well known in the business. How do I hide a whole family? It's obvious they are noticeable. Defense attorney Levine emphasized that Grady's condition did not render him defenseless. It's true, Mary stood at a normal height and suffered no disability, but it had not given her any physical advantage over Grady. According to the Tampa Bay Times, Levine said about Grady, he had no legs, he had stumps, but in spite of these deformities, he was a powerful, powerful person. He would pop off the wheelchair onto his fingers, scoot across an area, and in a drunken state, beat someone. Several witnesses testified to convey various incidents where Grady exhibited combative behavior. Kathy Stiles, who was injured by her father while pregnant, said she'd been trying to defend her mother at the time. Grady Stiles III was asked about his father's drinking when he took the stand. He told the jury that Grady had consumed at least five double shots of whiskey on the evening he was killed, according to the Tampa Tribune. But when prosecutors asked him if his father had been verbally or physically abusive that night, Grady III had to admit he hadn't. The defense insisted it wasn't far-fetched to think Grady's behavior would have become violent. After all, it had happened countless times before. Prosecutor Sandra Spoto had a toxicologist testify about Grady's blood alcohol content on the night of his death. It was only 0.02%. The science unsubstantiated any allegation that Grady was drinking heavily making him likely to act violently. A strange twist delayed the trial. In the beginning, Judge M. William Grable presided, but halfway through the trial, the judge was forced to step down when he was suddenly diagnosed with tuberculosis. The trial was recessed and free TB tests were offered to jurors just in case they were exposed to the disease. The ailing judge was replaced by acting circuit judge William Fuente. Court proceedings resumed with the testimony of three mental health experts. They testified on the psychological impact of battered wife syndrome and the sense of unending powerlessness Mary likely felt. 
Battered wife syndrome is not a license to kill, Prosecutor Spoto declared in closing remarks cited by the Miami Herald. She told the jury, you are being asked to extend it to a situation where it does not apply. According to the Miami Herald, Prosecutor Ron Haynes added that Mary was a person who acted out and was not helpless, who saved money and conspired to commit a crime. He asked jurors to hold her accountable for Grady's death. Defense attorney Arnold Levine reminded jurors that the question they needed to answer was whether Mary had acted out of self-defense. As reported by the Tampa Tribune, Levine admitted that arranging Grady's murder should have been a last resort. Regardless, in this case, it was the easiest resort for someone who constantly feared for their life. The jury wasn't unanimous during deliberations. On the first day, the panel of six women and six men spent almost four hours debating the case before recessing for the night without reaching a verdict. The following day, after six hours of deliberations, a decision was reached. Mary Stiles was found guilty of manslaughter with a firearm and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Mary was in shock. The jury could have charged her with first-degree murder outright, which would have resulted in a life sentence. Instead, the jury resolved to go easy on her, but she didn't see it that way. In her statements at the sentencing hearing, it was obvious that Mary felt slighted by the jury's verdict. It almost felt as though they didn't believe her when she said she was horribly abused. According to the LA Times, as her eyes spouted tears, Mary told the judge, my husband was going to kill my family. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. For her role in Grady's murder, Mary Stiles was sentenced to 12 years in prison, followed by five years probation. An appeal allowed her to delay prison time for almost two years. During that time, she was released on bond and placed under house arrest. The appeal, however, was ultimately denied. Mary's attorney implored the judge for maximum leniency, but Judge Fuentes held firm to state guidelines. As reported by the Tampa Bay Times, Fuentes said, what would the message be for someone not to receive any punishment whatsoever for taking a life? In February of 1997, Mary resigned to her fate. She hugged her granddaughter for the last time before addressing the judge. As quoted by the Tampa Bay Times, she said, Your Honor, I am deeply sorry for what has happened to my husband, but I know my family's going to be okay, and I know they're going to be alive tomorrow morning. If Mary needed to sacrifice her freedom to ensure her loved ones would be safe, she would. Years of torment from the man she loved revealed her strength. If Mary could survive Grady, she could survive prison. In a separate sentencing hearing, Harry Glenn Newman III was given a life sentence for first-degree murder. The gunman, Chris Wyant, pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 27 years. In the years since the trial, Grady Stiles III has chosen to follow in his father's footsteps. 
as the sixth generation born with ectrodactyly, he carried on the family legacy by performing in the Venice Beach Freak Show. He also appeared in AMC's documentary series, Freak Show, which chronicles the lives of sideshow performers. Grady III insists performing is the only common trait he shares with his father. He told the Miami Herald, I don't want to be recognized for him. I'm me and he's him. I'm nothing like him except my hands. Through performing, Grady Styles III met the bearded lady and they fell in love. Before joining the Venice Beach Freak Show, Grady III was trying his best to survive on government disability checks like several of his siblings. Sadly, after losing its lease, the freak show gave its final performance in April of 2017. The legacy of Lobster Boy lives on in popular culture. Characters inspired by Grady Stiles Jr. have appeared in HBO's Carnival, American Horror Stories Freak Show, and a Deadpool comic. Several books have been written about the murderous Claude Mann, who became a victim. Attitudes toward freak shows and sideshows have transformed since Grady Stiles Jr. was in the spotlight. These performances are now widely viewed as exploitative. With modern medical advances, birth defects are now often detected in the womb. Having fewer babies born with physical abnormalities has contributed to the extinction of the American sideshow. The intricacies of this unusual case leave a lasting impression. We're left to ponder how Mary Stiles reached a point where killing felt justified. Regardless, Mary decided she couldn't take the abuse any longer. She recruited the help of Harry Glenn Newman III, the son from her previous marriage, and Grady's own stepson. Together, they hatched a plan to end her suffering. This begs the question, if Mary had not decided to have her husband killed, would he have killed her? Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Share your thoughts about this case with me on Instagram or TikTok. I'm at Jamie on Air on both platforms. That's J-A-M-I on Air. I hope you'll consider joining me at a live meetup on February 24th 2024 that I'm co-hosting with my good friends, Aaron and Justin, hosts of the Generation Y podcast. The free meetup is taking place in North Hollywood at the Idle Hour Bar on Saturday, February 24th, 2024. Aaron, Justin, and I will be there for a casual hangout with friends and fans of our podcast. Mark your calendars for February 24th, 2024 and join us in Los Angeles for a casual and fun evening. Go to Murderish.com for more event details. I hope to see you there. I hope you'll consider supporting Season of Justice, a nonprofit organization that provides resources to help solve cold cases and bring answers to victims' loved ones. For the entire month of January, 2024, I'm partnering with Season of Justice to collect donations and bring awareness to this very worthy organization in hopes of solving cold cases and providing some sense of peace for crime victims' families. To donate, all you have to do is text MURDERISH to 53555. For all donations of $25 and over, the donator will get a shout out on an upcoming episode of MURDERISH. 
To donate, just text MURDERISH to 53555 or go to MURDERISH.com for more details. Do me the biggest favor and leave a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Are you like me and you're out there watching all the true crime documentaries that exist and you want a community of like-minded people to talk about them with? Well, I think you need to join the True Crime TV Club I started. We call ourselves the Serial Streamers and we meet in my Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube comments a couple of times a month to dish about all the crazy true crime docs we're watching together. If you wanna join Serial Streamers, all you have to do is follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at Jamie on Air. That's J-A-M-I on Air. And then watch for videos about the latest TV series we're watching together. So you can join us in the comments and share your thoughts. That's Jamie on Air on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. If you want ad-free episodes of Murderish, sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon, or just go to Murderish.com, and then you can start enjoying ad-free episodes right away. Thank you to Gay Barry, Lynn M., and Trisha for becoming the latest Murderish Behind the Mic Patreon supporters. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Hey everyone, I need your help with a missing person case. 44-year-old Cynthia Acevedo went missing from Levine, Arizona on August 15, 2019. The Native American woman is described as 5'4", around 230 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen walking near the town cemetery. Before she was reported missing by her mother, Cynthia had stopped all communication with her loved ones for two weeks. Her disappearance and possible death appears to be suspicious to investigators. Cynthia can be identified by a scar on her left cheek. A $5,000 reward is being offered by the FBI for any information leading to the indictment, arrest, and conviction of the individuals tied to her disappearance or death. Please contact the Phoenix Field Office or your local FBI office with any tips on Cynthia Acevedo's disappearance. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.